Here we come to that part in the Lord's message, and this has been a very long message on the bread of life, which of course followed the feeding of the 5,000. And you see then the, the link of our Lord's works and the things that He actually did outwardly that so impacted people, the supernatural power, the ministry that He did. You see the link with that as often being a setup for the more important thing really, which was the Word of God that He wanted to give the people. Because that's what made all the difference, not only in their eternity, in terms of salvation, future, but in their life right here and now. So he has gone into this Bread of Life sermon, and we've been studying it for a while, and we come down to the end of it where he really calls them to commitment, and he really sharpens his message and effectively becomes very narrow and very demanding. So that... When he says to them, except you eat my body and drink my blood, he's effectively saying the only way you can come into eternal life is if you do that. And if you don't do that, he said, you don't have any life in you. And what he was saying effectively was a statement about the cross where he would die for the sins of the world. And he was saying to them, there is no other way. So we understand that at this point in the message of Jesus Christ, he's got a gigantic following. I think that not only is there the 5,000 and the, the women and children that he fed on the, the hillside, but there are those that have just been traveling along with him for quite a while. And you get the picture as you look at this passage in front of us that the, um, the number of his disciples was, was pretty large. So that even though you have the, the crowd that followed him around from when he fed them the bread... You, of course, you have that little tiny group of the twelve. How have not I chosen twelve, he even says in this passage. And, and yet, it seems that beyond that group of the twelve, which he personally talked to, ministered to, walked with, used every incident as a, as a new lesson, it seems there was another fringe group that came along regardless. It's almost like he can't talk to us all the time and every day, and he spends all his time with those twelve, but... You know, he preaches everywhere he goes, so we're going anyway. So it seems that many people left their homes, their lands, whatever, to travel along. So here's the disciples camped out with Jesus, and here's a lot of the other disciples over here in their little camps. So that there was a large number of people following him on an ongoing basis. And as he comes to this section in his message, he becomes absolutely as narrow as you can get. One of the things that's difficult for people to deal with, and you have encountered this, I'm sure, if you've done any witnessing, is the narrowness of the Christian message. And people will make no bones about saying to you, you know, I, I don't mind your Jesus. I, he did so many nice things, and, and he seems like a loving, forgiving guy and all of that. And certainly we need a lot of good gurus in the world, and we thank the Lord for sending all the different prophets, Muhammad and Buddha, and you know, they, into this thing. I don't mind all that, but what I do mind, they'll tell you, is that you're so narrow. Why are you people so narrow-minded? Now they'll say, look at me. I'm open. I'm open to the teaching of Muhammad. I'm open. You know, and they, they think they're so great because they're so open. And then they get a frown on their face and they say, but you're not. If, if there's anything you are, it's not open. And then we tend to get in a panic. What do I do now? You know, I want to get along with this person. I want to see them saved. So how do I get over this thing of my message being so narrow? Listen, in the end, you don't. 
And you don't even try. The best answer is to just smile very lovingly back and say, you know something, maybe give them a touch on the shoulder. You know how a touch is a warm thing. You know something, you're right. Our message is absolutely narrow. In fact, it's the most narrow message there is. And it's not my message, it's my master's message. And he was God come in the flesh. And he said, not me, he said there was only one way. And you have to make some decisions in life. And that is, are you going to believe that and find eternal life and go surely into your death and into heaven and the life thereafter? Or are you going to gamble and play Russian roulette on some of these other guys you follow and lose in the end? That's a pretty heavy choice. So yes, my message is narrow because he is the only door. And I don't make any apologies for that. And if you reject him, then you're like all these people in the passage. That's the best line to say to people. It's the truth. Just do it lovingly. And don't back down. What if you backed down and waffled, and you were the last person to ever witness to them? And they died and went to hell. That'd be pretty heavy, wouldn't it? I mean, it isn't that the whole plan of redemption rests on you, you know, on your perfect day of witnessing. But at the same time, it is a heavy thing to contemplate. Jesus is so narrow here, and as a result of telling it like it is and sticking to it, he has a response of rejection. Look at verse 60. Therefore, many of his disciples, many, when they heard this, eat my body, drink my blood, and all of this, when they heard this, said, this is a hard saying. Who can understand it? Who can hear it? When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples complained about this, he said to them, does this offend you? So it seems that they weren't necessarily complaining so much outwardly as they were among themselves. Jesus knew that his disciples complained about it. He knew in himself. He knew because he knows everything. So you see the picture? Here's the word going out. Here's the narrow way presented. Here is a hard saying. From the lips of Jesus, the Word of God, and here are clusters of people, and as they listen, they murmur and they complain. There's grumbling breaking out in the ranks. And he stops, because he knows what's in all men, and he addresses the issue. And he says, does this offend you? He stops right in the middle of his message, and he said, does this offend you? And he says, what then, if you should see the Son of Man ascend, I love this, where he was before. It's not a general statement. He doesn't say, go to heaven. He says, where he was before. You see, he had already told them he came down from heaven and they didn't like it. So he says, what happens if I go back to the exact place I came from? Really, you know, at the right hand of the Father. This is a great statement on the pre-existent Christ. Where I was before. From the lips of Jesus is his pre-existence. He says, what if you should see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? You know what he's saying? Have you ever wondered how this fits in there? I mean, how does he get on that? This bothers you? Eat my body, drink my blood? Well, what if you see me ascend to where I was before? Hold it, Lord. How does that connect? Simply this. I'm taking this body that you think I'm saying you have to physically eat. I'm taking this body back to heaven with me. So please understand you're missing the whole point. <laughs> That's how it fits. If it bothers you this, what if I tell you that I'm going back to where I came from, which only affirms that I am God, 
And also, I'm taking the body with me. It's kind of like, that's going to mess you up even more, isn't it? Straight talk from the lips of Jesus. He's really explaining himself to them in a sense. And then he says, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit, and they are life. Notice, the words are spirit, and the words are life. He says, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe, and who would betray him. And he said, Therefore I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him of my Father. You know, I don't want to really get into a lot of that. We spent so much time on the whole matter of election in Peter, First Peter chapter 1, verse 2. I think what he's doing here, he's doing a thing that's very common in informal teaching where you've got a group of people, you see some of them are rejecting, and then you have some others over here, and so you make a statement. You know they're only going to further reject it, but the statement not only arouses and offends them worse, but it actually gives a little enlightenment to the ones that really want to learn and follow. When he says that, Therefore I have said to you, no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by my Father. It's almost like turning to his disciples and saying, you see what's going on here? This is just another example of our past discussions of election. Do you understand how dark and depraved men's hearts are? If the Spirit hasn't quickened them, it's almost like just a side comment. Remember election 101? This is it. Open your eyes. Watch it. You can see more of this in life. So that's how I take that. And thus it fits into the flow very nicely. In verse 66 it says, But from that time... Many of his disciples went back and walked with him. For how long were they gone? No more. They left and that was it. Then Jesus turned and he said to the twelve, Do you also want to go away? It's almost like, quick guys, search your hearts. There's a big pressure here. What are you doing with it? How How does it affect you? But Simon Peter answered and he said, Lord, to... Whom shall we go? I think we often quote this and say, not whom, but what? Where? Where shall we go? The issue, market, is not where, it is to whom. Everyone, every human being needs the answers to life. And those answers come from a whom, not a where. To whom are we going to go to? You have the words of eternal life. Also we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered them. He said, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And one of you is, this is radical, a devil. He's calling one of the twelve actually, literally, a devil. And he spoke of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for it was he who would betray him, being one of the twelve. So... Here it is. Isn't it interesting that Jesus says in verse 70, Didn't I choose you? I chose 12 of you. And even though I chose you, and he knew all things. So he knew they were murmuring, remember? Even though I chose all of you, I chose all of you knowing one of you is a devil. That's a pretty heavy thing, isn't it? Very interesting to contemplate. But we'll have to get to that when we get to it. So, he spoke of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. Judas is a very interesting and tragic study. 
As I look at this passage, there's three obvious things here to me. The first one is the deserters. Many of them went away. The deserters. The second is the dependent. He turned to the twelve. Are you going? No. They were dependent by now on him. And the third is the devil. He calls the man a devil, literally and actually. What does he mean by that? Let's start with the deserter, shall we? He's preaching along here, and he begins to say some things that are difficult for the flesh. One thing you realize as you grow in the Lord that not everything God says to us is easy. There are a lot of hard sayings. In the matter of salvation, for sure, it is so narrow, that's hard. Afterwards, there are so many things that are difficult to deal with all through the Christian life. So here Jesus is teaching. He teaches some things that are difficult. They are especially difficult for flesh. That's how I put it. Humanness. In other words, as a human being, just listening as a human being, they're hard to deal with. The initial knee-jerk reaction is one of, hey, hold it. So Jesus does this more than once. It's best to learn now, soon, immediately, that some of the things he says are very difficult and that that's the way it is. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, they said, this is a hard saying. Now, the point here is that the, the word, it doesn't mean necessarily so much hard to be understood as more the idea of an offensive saying. The real issue for the most part of these people wasn't so much that they couldn't simply understand what he was saying. It was that they didn't want to believe what they did understand he was saying. You understand the difference? It's one thing to say, I just can't get what you're saying. It's another thing to say, I hear you, but I don't like it. You see the difference? So when they said this is a hard saying, what they were saying is, we hear him. We don't like it. And that began to spread through the crowd. You know, you look at these people and you say, well, why were they like this? Well, one of the reasons is that they had turned Judaism into a religion that was purely outward. You remember when, when God gave Moses the Ten Commandments, and he goes down through them all. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, right? Love your neighbor as yourself. Love, it's an attitude of the heart. You go down through the thing and you realize in the Ten Commandments, don't steal, don't covet your neighbor's wife. All these things really begin with the heart. The idea was to show them internally how they really were and drive them into the arms of a loving, saving God, showing them their own inability deep within their souls. Well, they took the thing and brought it out to the outside so that by the time Jesus came, as he preached... He stood up in the Sermon on the Mount and he said, You have heard it said. And then he quotes. And then he went on to say, But I say to you, it's the heart. You have heard it said, You shall not murder. I say, don't even hate. You have heard it said. You've heard it said, presented on the outside. I'm here to tell you that what God is after is not behavior on the outside. He's after first the heart. So these people listening to him here were people that had made all the religious leaders and scribes and Pharisees. They had made their entire religion top to bottom, through and through, simply externals. 
And if nothing else, this passage speaks so heavily to the preoccupation in this day with externals that there are so many who would sum up Christianity from top to bottom, side to side, as externals. What is important? Did you pray the sinner's prayer? Did you get the prayer right? Do you go to communion every time? Do you get the ceremony right? Were you baptized? You know, and did you do it right? All these things to the exclusion of the heart. So that, did you light your candles? Did you ever wonder what drives people to go and kneel and light candles? Think about that. Did you ever wonder what, what causes them to hold a handful of beads and, and pray a prayer over and 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 to have a prescription given out by someone to you that if you've done thus and thus sins, here's the prescription, give about you know 18 of these with a few our fathers? Did you ever wonder, see, that's all outward stuff. It's mechanical. It, it is, in fact, mathematic. Did you ever wonder, what is the addiction? I mean, why will people do it? Why will people do it? Because there's something about the human condition that will say yes to ceremony and no to the heart. Yes to ceremony and no to the heart. You know why? Because you can do all that and never give your heart to God. You want 18 Hail Marys? I'll give them to you. I'll fire them off. You want 16 Our Fathers? Watch this. I'll do it backwards, blindfold, and upside down. It's mechanical. How many candles? I'll light 16. I'll light an extra one, 17. And it's all this kind of thing. Why? Because if you can tell me I can be right with God by ceremony, then I'll keep my heart for myself. And that's the way man wants it. Give me a religion. Give me some outward do's and don'ts. Give me some ceremonies and tell me I'll go to heaven and I'll take it. Tell me I've got to give my heart to God and it becomes an entirely different thing. They understood what he was saying. They didn't want it because they wanted their outward ceremony which made them look godly on the outside, Jesus said, when on the inside they were full of dead man's bones, they were rotten to the core, to put it in the vernacular. When they say this is a hard saying, it isn't that they can't understand it. It's that they do understand it and they don't like it and they don't want to believe it and they more don't want to obey it. So what did they do with that? Well, you know what they did? They were offended and they murmured and they complained about it. Murmuring and complaining. Look at verse 61. When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples complained, King James, the old King James says murmured. The NIV says grumbled. Funny, they all chose a different word. New King James, old and NIV. Complained, murmured, and grumbled. They all reached for a different word. But you know what? They all speak of the same thing. And the idea is, he says, does this offend you? I know it does. He was effectively saying, I know it offends you. What are you going to do with it? Look at this. Here is the master preacher. Now, think of who your favorite preachers are. You got it? All three of them? Think of who your favorite preachers are, and think of what you like best about them. Oh, I love that voice, that golden voice. I love that oratory. And I think of Chuck Swindoll, the master orator, the great pulpit counselor. I think of Chuck Smith. I listen to him and I feel like I'm in a spa. I, the bubbles, I mean, I just, oh, I love God. I love the whole thing, you know. I think of John MacArthur. It's like a machine gun came into the pulpit. You know, 
Fung, 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 fung. Oh, you got me. You got me again. You know? All right, all right. I'll do it, Lord. <laughs> you know? And then you see John one-on-one. He's the most gracious, loving guy you ever see. You know, you think of these people, whoever it might be. You think of Billy Graham. You love the fact he's still going after all these years, you know? And he said, on Larry King Live. Well, Larry, I'm not so sure about you. You know, and only you know. God bless you, Billy. Forthright, upright, outright, you know. I love it. But think of your favorite preachers. Think of the best things. Now think of the things even about them you don't like. It's not so hard, is it? It comes quickly to your mind. Isn't that funny how that is? Please leave me out of the whole thing, will you? I know I'm certainly not on the list I just gave you. So, you know, you, you think about that and then think about what the trouble you know that has surrounded these different men. Oh, did you hear so-and-so? You know, left Chuck's church. Oh, yeah, and did you know they went to John's? Yeah, but that's not all. Did you know that they ended up in Swindoll's? Yeah, but that's not all. You know, Swindoll left and he went down, you know, south. So some of them followed him. But that's not all. Did you know? You know, and on it goes in the merry-go-round of Christianity. We all know of trouble surrounding our favorite preachers. Thus, you know, when we hear murmuring and complaining, well, you know, that's the way it is. But look, this is the flawless preacher. Everyone we've just talked about, they're all human and none God and all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But we are facing here in John 6, 61, flawless perfection. Talk about oratory. When he was done, the people were astonied. The old King James says, astonied. Do you know what that is? Not either. When he was done, the Bible says the people, they were astonished. So when Jesus is done preaching, the people literally, their minds are blown. They're sitting there like this. What do you think about that, Charlie? (laughs) They're astonished. Why? Because they said, we have never heard it like this. And certainly not from those guys, you know, the scribes and Pharisees. He was perfect. He was flawless. Talk about power. He had it. Talk about a burning heart. When he spoke to you. Oh. And talk about the love. Talk about the grace. Talk about the tact. Talk about the timing. He was God. You would never have, and there will never be, a finer, more perfect preacher cutting it straight, giving the balance, giving the stories, giving the illustrations than Jesus Christ, and they're murmuring at Him. Isn't that something? That is really something. So what that says to me, and it ought to say to any of you that share the Word, that this is very common. It has been, and it will be. There will be murmuring, and there will be complaining, and there will be offenses. You get used to it. You understand this is the way it is. As long as there are human hearts that are full of self-indulgence, there will be murmuring and complaining. As long as there is any kind of sin in the human condition, there will be the murmuring and complaining. And as long as there's unconverted people in the church, and there always is, there will be murmuring and complaining. And as long as they can be in the church and be disguised, have not I chose twelve of you and one is a devil. Which one? You know? They're at the Last Supper. One of you will betray me. Lord, is it I? I mean, never even considering who it was. means he looked identical and was never suspected. Maybe the last guy they would have suspected. 
As long as that goes on, there's going to be murmuring and complaining and you should never get surprised when it comes your way. When you're standing around in the crowd and the word's going out and suddenly the murmuring breaks out. Don't be surprised. Don't act shocked. See, for some, I think the Lord's words appear hard to understand. They're so far out there and they're not really interested. They've been drugged into the thing that they're not even trying. It's kind of like retreats you go to where the parents make the kids go. And they would rather be anywhere on the planet than sitting in a Bible study. Hey, how'd you like the message? Eh, I don't know. These things are so hard to understand. They're not even trying. They don't even care. So you can understand that. But you see, for others... They appear to be hard to believe and hard to obey because they simply don't want to. When I look at this and I see them saying, this is a hard saying, who can understand it? It's to me what they're really saying is, what kind of a person would want to go along with this? And that's the murmuring. Are you going along with this? What kind of a person would want to go along with this? Only some kind of a nerd would want to go along with Are you a nerd? You know, in the media, the intimidation, the peer pressure, it broke out. And it swept through the entire crowd, didn't it? Except for a little handful of people. They were offended and they complained. Listen, it's going to happen. Don't be surprised when it does. Be on your guard and be ready to stand with what you personally believe to be true. You know what I think is the, the, the real cure for not being offended at the Lord's hard sayings? And there are a number of them. I think the real cure is simply true humility. True humility, and I think we ought to all pray for it. True humility in this sense, that when you come to a difficult saying of the Lord and you're having a hard time understanding it, that you're humble enough to realize how much ignorance you have left in here and here. Not only in your heart, but in your head. So that there are so many things you don't understand yet. So many things He's commanded and given you to do and put in His Word that you never have lived out. You haven't even tried it. So you don't have the criteria to judge. If you're truly humble, you can just come to the Lord and say that. You know what, Lord? There's so many things I know You've said. I know You love me. You've, you tell me to do this and not that because You want me to be blessed. I haven't even sampled it. And now I come to what seems to be an even harder saying, and I realize, Lord, how can I judge that saying when I haven't even tried the other? I haven't even dealt with the simple. How can I deal with the lofty? And so, Lord, help me. I don't want to complain, Lord. I just want to accept this. You know so much. You're so wise. You know everything. You know everything in man. See, if you come with that kind of humility that just says, Lord, I have so much ignorance, then you're not going to be so quick to be offended. But rather, I think you'll be quick just to say, Lord, give me more light. I want to understand. I want to have the criteria. Give me a greater experience in my own Christian life so many of these difficult things can be some of the things I love the most. Because I've realized they're so lofty, they pack the greatest blessing. God, more light. You know, that has become in my life one of my most offered prayers to the Lord. Lord, I want more light. You know, part of it is because I have to teach all the time. And I need it just to teach. But I'm talking about living. Coming to the Bible in a difficult saying on my own, Lord, I need more light. Do you ever pray that? Lord, that is really hard to understand. God, give me more light. He loves to give it. 
He doesn't always give it in the measure we want it, but he does respond to those prayers. And so often you go back over a passage after, say, a year or so, and you read it, and what was so difficult before has become the passion of your life. That's why I said not long ago that the things that I really sort of had a hard time with in my early Christian life and really sort of tried to rationalize them away and tried to avoid and tried to go around, those have become the things I love the most. They are the most meaningful to me now. The things that I shirked in the beginning, I embrace now and I long to embrace them even more. And so you come and you pray, Lord, give me more light. And then there are those things that aren't just difficult, but, but they're hard to obey. I think that true humility is the cure for that. Because you understand, well, God is bigger than me, and He never requires the impossible of me. Mark it down, remember it, commit it to memory. God will never require the impossible of you. Never. So that you come along and you encounter a difficult saying. You cannot back up and say, Lord, that's impossible. Yes, with men, all things like that are impossible. With God, nothing's impossible. Have you learned the sweetness of my grace is made perfect in weakness? Have you learned the sweetness of saying, Lord, humanly speaking, this is a difficult saying for flesh, but I am your child, and you have said you delight in showing your strength in my weakness. Now, Lord, I'd like more light, and I'd like more strength, and I want it in such a way that when it's all done, there's no question it was you. And then I'll have a testimony to go with the light and the strength. It's a wonderful way to live. So true humility is a great cure, I think, for this murmuring and this complaining. You know, you're always in a church situation, and I'm not thinking of anything in particular right now, but you always have in every church where the word goes out, there are always these seasonal movements where people begin to murmur and complain, and they always do it in clusters. People come to churches in packs, and they leave in packs. They travel in packs. And the ones that come in alone looking for Jesus, find Him and stay on alone, linking arms with others that feel the same way, they tend to be the long-haul people. The ones that come in in packs and they say, and we're all here, you know, and we're not there. And you know the one, he's so famous and everything, well, here's what we don't like about him, and da 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 And so the pack has come. I always think, and the pack will go, and I will be him. And you'll be somewhere else telling another guy about him. They come in packs, they go in packs. A lot of research indicates, get this, the average person stays in a church three years. Three years. And you know why they stay? Not the teaching. And it's not the worship. It's not even entertainment if people have that. It is this, friends. People come in packs and they go in packs. They come in alone, they find a pack and they leave in a pack. But people come and go in churches According to the research, about every three years is the average stay. If you understand, that's just a dynamic of observation. If you understand that, and you couple it together with this reality of people not wanting to go along with some of the Lord's real hard sayings, and that the reaction is to murmur and complain, then when the revolving door spins again, you're not going to be in a big panic. He turned to Peter. Peter was as stalwart and upright, outright as, as he ever was. Ready to answer not only for himself, but the whole group. Don't you love the guy? Lord, I'm sure I speak for everybody. 
Hold it. We haven't even talked to you, Peter. That's all right. I know everything. You know, Lord, where are we going? It's you. You see, that kind of guy, he didn't care. He didn't care. And it wasn't that he didn't fall later because he was human after all, but he was real. Here's the bottom line. Are you one of the murmurers and the complainers? Do you get a cluster? Have you come in a pack? Are you ready to take a pack? Do you look at these things of the Word of God and, and then react by complaining and reaching the people around you like that? If so, you're really in a bad place in life. If you're not, and you're ready to stand with Peter, then you're in a great place in life, whether you're perfect or not. So... This is a, a very challenging passage. Jesus teaches some things that are very difficult for the flesh. Not only that, he goes on and he teaches that the Holy Spirit alone can impart spiritual life. You know, I just wish that every church, and it doesn't matter what denomination, every church, if they would just come and take the teachings of Jesus, if they would give the Bible a voice, then everything would be done the way God wants it. There wouldn't be this problem that we have so many weird teachings and practices, if you just come and see right here what Jesus teaches. He teaches some difficult things, all right? That's reality. We flow with it. We grow. We get strong. We get tough. We get more light. We get stronger and all of this. But he also teaches that the Holy Spirit alone can impart spiritual life. Look at verse 63. He says, It is the Spirit who gives life. That's it. The flesh profits nothing. Now, do you understand what kind of light that sheds on church growth programs? Well, we're just helping the, the Spirit out here, you know. It is the Spirit that gives life, not programs. Life is imparted by the Spirit of conversion. Jesus turns to the disciples. He says, look, I told you, you can't come if the Father doesn't draw you. Apart from the work of the Spirit, a man in his depravity is dead. A dead man would sooner get up and walk out of his tomb. It is the Spirit who gives life at conversion and afterwards. And so he's trying to undo the thinking of these people where everything is outward. They think that they can go to heaven and have a spiritual existence by what they do on the outside. And he's saying, you're wrong. It's the Spirit who gives life. That he teaches that not only the Holy Spirit can impart life alone, him, but he teaches the flesh profits nothing. The flesh profits nothing. You know, we could go on for the rest of the night citing examples of groups that place such an emphasis on what the flesh is doing. I mean, just think of Eastern religions. And they're so big on the diet thing. They've got this mystical thing attached to food. Even to the point, you know, like Hindus will not eat cows. And so you, you look at the movies of the starving people in India, everywhere starving. They won't eat the cow. They think it's some kind of a deity. And, and so there's this mystical thing attached to food. Then there's the rats running everywhere. And they won't eat the rats. Well, I wouldn't want to, but they won't kill them. They've made them some kind of a god as well, the rat god. I would never want to serve a rat god, would you? And you look at that whole thing and then you look at their diet and all that they attach to that and how that, what they think it does for them spiritually. Jesus Christ puts it right out front. He said, the flesh profits nothing. Nothing. How about Seventh-day Adventism? They go back to the Mosaic Law. 
They think that they'll be more spiritual by this outward thing of a day. Saturday. They go and they borrow from the dietary regulations of the Mosaic Law, and they feel that this special diet will enhance their spiritual condition. Jesus said it. Listen to him. The flesh profits how much? Some. A little. It's all right. Nothing. What do you do with that? You just ignore it? You know what? People come to the conclusion, we understand it, but we don't want it. We don't want it. If you want to be spiritual, it's the Spirit who gives you the life. If you want to grow, you understand the flesh profits nothing, and suddenly you're freed from all the candles. You're freed from all the beads. You're freed from ceremonies. You're freed from rituals that can give you nothing. And you're driven into the arms of a loving Christ, who by His Spirit, not by might or power, but my Spirit, says the Lord, has come to mold you into His image and give you the blessed life. Jesus teaches some things that are difficult for the flesh. Jesus teaches the Holy Spirit alone can impart spiritual life. Jesus teaches the flesh profits nothing. Here's a good way to look at it. Spiritual benefit is not to be had through the mouth, but through the heart. Not through the mouth, but through the heart. You don't, that doesn't mean you have to throw away your aloe cleansing formula when you go home. You can have a drink tonight. That'll be all right. But you understand, this isn't going to get me any closer to God. He teaches that flesh profits nothing. And then another thing here is that he teaches the Word is the source of all spiritual progress. How could anybody ignore that? I don't know. Look at this. He says in verse 63, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words, the actual words that I speak to you are spirit. They are life. You remember John opened up his book. It's no wonder he's quoting these specific things. He started off his gospel in the beginning was what? The Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And he opened his mouth and he began to speak and they heard things that had never been uttered before and they were astonished. The words I speak to you, they are spirit and they are life. It is interesting then, Jesus teaching that the word is the source of all spiritual progress. The very thing then they needed most is the thing they rejected the strongest. Don't miss that. See, a little while ago, they had brought up in this message, they had brought up the whole idea of Moses and manna. Remember that? Moses gave the fathers manna in the wilderness. But you see, they were so far, if you want to go and use that, they were so far from what God was trying to teach them there through Moses by the incident of the manna. In fact, let me show it to you. Turn in your Bible, could you, to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 8. Moses is calling the people to remember their God and to go forward with Him. And he's so concerned for their well-being and their blessedness. Deuteronomy 8.1 This is a, an account of the very thing that people with Jesus were pointing back to. Moses says, Every commandment which I command you today, you must be careful to observe. Why? Why, Moses? Why is it important? that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land, the blessedness, 
which the Lord swore to your fathers, the promise, the promised land. And you shall remember that the Lord your God led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness. Notice, to humble you and to test you, to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. You see, you see how it all comes back to the word? And then in verse 8, chapter 8, verse 3, he humbled you, causing you to hunger. He allowed them to come to the place of hungering. And then he fed you. Notice he did it with manna, which neither you nor your fathers had known. In other words, he fed them with manna. One translation of manna says it means, what is it? He fed you with what is it? He fed you with what is it? None of, nobody's seen this before. They're out of bread, they're out of food, they're out of everything, they're hungry, and then God says, watch this. You're going to love this, what is it? They went out and there it was. What is it was all over. And they ate it, and He fed them. But, but notice, He wanted to teach them something about that whole process, and it had to do with His Word being the source for their lives. And the manna was just one example of what His Word could do to meet their need. So he humbled you, verse 3, causing you to hunger, then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your fathers had known to teach you, that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Think of it. Every word. If this is true, follow this. If this is true, that the only way to grow spiritually is by the word of God. If it's true, and Jesus said it's true, then wouldn't you want to hang on every word? If it's true that it comes from God to you, wouldn't you want to hang on every word? So that Moses says right here, here's what he was trying to teach you. That you would come to the point in your life where you understand that you don't live just by bread. It isn't the outward, it isn't the material, but you live by every word that comes from the Lord, from the mouth of the Lord, so that you truly have a spiritual life. It's a tremendous thing. So that what you realize here, that even back here in Deuteronomy, God is developing the doctrine of the Word. The Word is the source of life and the source of growth. You follow it in, you, you see it in the Psalm, Psalm 19. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. More to be desired are they than gold, sweeter also than honey in the honeycomb cleansing your way, making you joyful, all of these things, cleansing you from secret faults. Is it no wonder then that you get to Matthew chapter 4? Remember when Jesus was driven by the Spirit out into the wilderness? He fasts for 40 days. He's now weak. He's at the limit that a human being can go and still be alive and, and not eat food. A good, healthy, fit human being around 40 days. And at that point, the devil now goes for him, realizing this is his weakest moment of all. And that's when he loves to hit you, isn't it? This is his weakest moment of all. Is it any wonder, starving now, the, the starvation process begins. Is it any wonder when he says, why don't you make these stones bread? And Jesus turns. It's almost as if to say, look, you know what? You've been using that on everybody since the garden. You and your lines, you use on everyone. I'm here to tell you, understand your thing. And let me tell you back. Every man will live by the Word of God. 
He will live by the word of God. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. I'm going to wait on the word of the Lord. He will sustain me. He can speak it, it will be done. I will not take matters into my own hands. You see, here he is face to face with Satan himself. Weak, probably weaker than any of us will be at any time. And what does he use? The very thing that Moses was just saying to all the common people. And it's perfectly effective because he believes it. He believes it. And then he goes out in his ministry and he teaches it to the people. And so we find them listening to Jesus, teaching this about the Word, and they reject it. And by rejecting it, they're rejecting the thing that they need most. Think about this. This is a very striking thing to contemplate. Do you realize they accepted almost everything about him? I mean, here's a big group. It's a big following. They accepted almost everything about him. For example, his person, they loved him. You'll never meet a better guy. Go up and talk to him. Look in his eyes. You're going to come back very impressed. They loved him. Go, bring your child near him. See what he does. I'll bet you he picks him up and blesses him. Sure enough, he did. I like this guy. They liked everything about him. Watch what he does with people taken in deep sin. See if this isn't the most forgiving person you've ever seen. They loved him. And not only that, they liked his works. Take your demon-possessed friend over to him. See what he does. They come back. He's delivered. They like this guy. Stand on the hillside and listen to him preach until it's late in the day and you're all hungry. And see what he does. I'll bet he feeds you. They're fed. Bread from heaven. They love it. They like this guy. So much that they run around the lake to catch up with him. They want some more. They want to see more miracles. They want to... All of the... They love him. Now watch this. His person they accepted. His works they accepted. But his words they did not accept. And how many people do you think are out there? They love him. They love his person. They love his works. But his words... Mm -mm. They don't want them. And when it comes down to the point where they understand what he's really beginning to demand of them, murmuring breaks out in the pack. Murmuring breaks out and there's movement and suddenly people are gone. The Bible says here that from that time many of his disciples went back and they walked with him no more. And the issue was not his person, it was not his works, it was his words. And so often that is the case. Are you here for a brief time? Are you a three-year research indicates person? Are you a murmur complainer person? Or are you a long-haul real Christian? The difference will be found in this. You love this person? Oh yes, fine, so do a lot of people. You love his words? Fine, so do a lot of people. Do you love his words? Do you even love the difficult ones? Do you stay when others go? If so, thank God for it. Thank God for it. Jesus stood in that place, perhaps in the synagogue in Capernaum, which was his headquarters. And on that day, he watched the entire crowd leave. And these were people that had been following him, many of them for a long time. And they were, quote, his disciples, which simply the word means learner. They had traveled with him. They had heard him preach. They had watched his works. 
But as the message got narrower and narrower and narrower down to the fact that there was only one way and it was Jesus Christ, and they heard things like pick up your cross, deny yourself and follow me or you can't be my disciple, they were gone. Now brethren, there's a whole lot more in this passage. But this is what you need to see today. Whether you're in this church where the Word is taught or some other church where the Word is taught, people come and go in packs. They murmur and they complain when the Word begins to make demands of them. And they take others with them when they go when they don't want the Word. Or maybe they say they do, but they really don't. And the proof is always in the pudding when you meet them six months later, or a year later, and they're nowhere with God. They're backslidden, they're divorced, they're in sin. And they're still pointing the finger in the wrong place. They ought to point it right at their own heart. Right at their own heart. And they ought to say, You know what it was that got me? The hard sayings. Oh no, they weren't hard to understand. I didn't want them. I, I didn't want to believe them. And I didn't want to obey them. And look at my life now. Look at my life now. And here's what I want to warn you about. Peter jumps up. Jesus said, you guys going to? Peter jumps up. I got it covered, fellas. No. Why? Because we know you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. You see him smiling. Oh, he's so excited. We're not going anywhere. Where would we go? And you look at that guy. Superhero? No. Perfect? No. But real? Yes. And you see him resist the pull. As he watches the other guys, maybe he even thought, I'll speak for them all now. They're feeling the pull too. Maybe they'll be glad if one of us speaks up first. We all believe it, Lord. You see him resist the pull, and he gives this noble confession. You see, here are the dedicated. He gives this noble confession. Here are the dependent. These men know there's nowhere else to go. Are we going to get better by leaving? Are we going to get better by Departing, Will our lives be more blessed by deserting? Who are we going to go to? Lord, everyone needs a teacher. Who's going to tell us the kind of things you tell us? Everyone needs forgiveness. You're the only one who's validated. You have the power to forgive as the Son of God. Where are we going to go? Who else will stand in your place? Where can we go, Lord? And this noble confession, this noble confession of this man who is so far from perfect but real, Real, a real Christian. You know why? Because true grace is an everlasting possession. And once you have it, 2 Timothy 2.19 says, The solid foundation of God stands, having this seal, the Lord knows those who are His. John 10.28, Jesus said, And I give eternal life, and they shall never perish. When I give it to them, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. And Peter stands up, why? Because he's forced by Jesus to articulate what he really believes. And that is a good thing. And when the murmuring breaks out and the packs begin to move, you too will be forced by Jesus to articulate to yourself what you really believe. And you not being perfect, if you have become truly dependent, if the movement is caused and the murmuring is caused over the issues of the Word... You will, too will make your noble confession. You don't like the word, I love the word. Any change, anything good that has ever come to me has come from that source. 
And as you go, and when you're gone, and I see you again, will you be better than you are now? Or will you be worse? Will you have another new wife? Will she be your third, your fourth? And will this just be another on your list of 85 churches you've gone to? And when will you come to terms with reality? You see, sometimes people succumb to the temptation to follow the fake because they're swept up in the emotion of the moment and even in their own hearts, they're not sure how to deal with the Lord's difficult sayings. You know what happens to many of them? We see them come back. Maybe years it takes them. We see them come back. And you know how they come back? Hungry. Hungry. And it isn't because this is the only place. I'm talking about we see them come back in all the churches that I know of that teach the Word. Don't be one of them that leaves and goes off with the pack because you have allowed people that don't even know God, many of them, and God will disclose that in the final day, to deceive you. Stand up with Peter, make a noble confession, and live for the Lord. You know what? Look at how much he knew. He said, I want to leave you this thought. He, he stood up and he says in verse 69, We have come to believe and we know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Do you realize he understood those things? But do you understand that man was full of ignorance? Do you understand that man? Let's talk about the cross. Did he understand that? Absolutely not. We don't believe you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. A little later, the Son of Man must go to Jerusalem and die. Not on your life. There'll be no talk of that on this team. Come over here, I'm going to counsel you. You need healing, Lord. I mean, you're in bad shape. And his advice was so demonic to Jesus in the face of the cross that Jesus turned to Peter and he went right to the source and he said, I rebuke you, Satan. Satan, you see. Peter was so ignorant. He knew nothing of the cross. He knew nothing of his death. He didn't understand so much about Jesus. But he sure gave a noble confession, didn't he? Look, there's so much you don't know. There's so much you don't understand. Real things, important things, and you still don't understand them. But listen, what you do understand, cling to it. Cling to it. Hold to it. And when the pack leaves, and the people go, and the friend, the one, the two, whatever, they depart... You come back to Jesus and say, Lord, there is nowhere else for me but here with you. More light, Lord, yes. More strength, Lord, oh, yes. Forgiveness, give it all to me. But, Lord, I'm staying here with you. That's the way to do it. Next time, I'm going to come back and talk about Judas Iscariot. What an amazing and tragic study that is. So many lessons to be learned there. Let's pray, shall we? Lord, thank you, Jesus. You have the words of eternal life. Lord, as you look upon this congregation this day, manifest your light to our hearts, Lord. Show each one their particular need for you, for your word, for your spirit. For those that don't know you, they're following along, they're part of the crowd, maybe for the longest time. Lord, show them that if they don't turn truly to you and give you their heart, that embracing your person and your work will not be enough to get them to heaven. And stop them in the way, Lord, and work your work of grace and bring them into the kingdom this day and into deliverance and into forgiveness. And may for the first time their eyes be opened and may they stand with Peter and the rest of those that are real, real though so imperfect, to give that noble confession for you. 
Lord, help us all to follow you fully and to follow you real. And we ask these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.